We invite you this time. If you'd like, you can grab a Bible from underneath the seats. That is the 2011 NIV, if you want to follow along with the version that we're going to be using. You'll also uh, should have received when you came in a month at a glance. It's a little sheet of paper on the other side there is a section if you want to jot down notes. For many of us, we find that helpful in following the sermon outline. And then there's also pens underneath the seats as well. So today I'm going to start with a bit of a serious question, if I may. Have you composed or even considered the content of the epitaph on your headstone? Yeah, I went there. I'm just going to put that out there. If not, because I imagine most of us have not, perhaps you'd be curious to know about a few of the more well-known or famous epitaphs in history, or at least recent history. This is courtesy of... Uh, Markle Monuments, or Merkel Monuments in Baltimore. I'm not a paid representative, I just want to be clear. But they've got a great website on this. So I'm just going to give you a few of the ones that they have uh, listed there to give examples. I found that to be very clever in selling headstones. Okay, so first we have Jesse James, right? The outlaw Jesse James. I don't know how many banks he robbed, way too many to describe. This is a true story. These are all true. His epitaph says, murdered by a traitor and coward whose name is not worthy to appear here. Going to be bitter to the very end, to the very grave, huh? And then we have F. Scott Fitzgerald, right? Famous novelist, Great Gatsby. His was much more poetic and philosophical, I might add. His says, so we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. I'm not even sure what that means, but it sounds great. It sounds great, right? You're like, I don't know. I'm gonna, uh, I can't. I can't. Too early on a Sunday. Okay, what about Mel Blanc or Blanc, depending on how you want to say it, right? Looney Tunes, Bugs Bunny. Right? Anyone? Am I the only one that remembers? Like Daffy Duck, uh, Porky Pig. Literally, this is what it says. That's all folks. Right? I guess you might as well go out saying something you were famous for saying. Um, And then Rodney Dangerfield, the notorious comedian. He had four words. I guess we're learning shorter and sweet is better. There goes the neighborhood. I don't know if that's where every place he went or just where he was buried. Um, It's pretty hard to denigrate a a, a graveyard, I guess. And then more inspirational, Martin Luther King Jr., free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. It's okay to share one more, one more. Although we're pretty sure he doesn't have a headstone, I think we come as close as possible In 2 Corinthians, or not 2 Corinthians, I should say 2 Timothy. 2 Corinthians actually has a lot of statements like this. But we have an official epitaph, or at least as close as we can get, with the Apostle Paul. And a couple verses there. So we're going to look together at 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. This is, we could consider an epitaph without the tombstone. And as you turn there, just to give you the setting. So we're going to frame the photo, as it were. Scholar Gordon Fee puts it this way. He says, this is Paul's final preserved letter. And it urges Timothy not only to come by Paul's side because he wants some manuscripts and his coat, but it mostly offers 
Timothy a kind of last will and testament. And then scholar William Mounts says, quote, Paul recites his spiritual legacy, not in a self-serving way, but in a way that shows his perseverance as an encouragement to Timothy. So really, this is Paul's last known letter. It's his last will and testament. And then we have a spiritual legacy passed on to Timothy to encourage him. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, again, if you're following along the Bibles, that's page 18, 13, 1, 8, 1, 3. Just going to look at three verses, six, seven, and eight. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to also to all who've longed for his appearing. So as we wrap up this nine-part series called The Contending Church, the last thing that we're called to contend for, because if you recall, we're looking at the nine different times this verb to contend is used. The last thing that we're called here and the very last words that we have on record from the Apostle Paul is to contend for completion. To contend for completion. Right? So we have here this, I would say, and I'd agree with many others, that in a sense call this an epitaph. And I think it's really a stunning epitaph. The tone, how positive it is, how hopeful and victorious it is. And I think it's stunning for three reasons. First, Paul is facing imminent death. He's facing imminent death. He says, I'm being poured out already right now. Right? When you pour out liquids, they go into the dust, they're gone. So Paul here knows that literally he's got minutes, hours, a few days left before he dies. And we're told, according to Eusebius, the church historian, that most likely Nero Caesar, the infamous Nero, who literally uh, had such great respect for Christians, he rolled them in tar and oil and stuck them on a stake and lit the Appian Way into Rome, used them as stakes to, to it's pretty, pretty crazy if you think about it. Eusebius tells us that he most likely uh, beheaded uh, Paul in Rome around 64 AD. So this is written somewhere before 64 AD. Paul literally had his head chopped off by Nero. And Paul knows that's coming. He knows Nero doesn't let anyone die quietly, you know, silently. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is the conditions are really, really bleak. Okay? For some of you that may know, there is the prison epistles that the Apostle Paul wrote. That's Philippians, Philemon, etc. Most likely there, Paul, during his first quote-unquote imprisonment, is what is known as house arrest, which is a much more cushy, um, environment than what he's facing here. When he was under house arrest, he may have been for part of the day chained to some kind of Roman soldier, but he's in an environment where he has a certain level of freedom. He can receive guests. He can receive visitors. Um, he had relatively um, good food. He had a relatively uh, good environment, decent accommodations. That's not the case here. 
By the time we get to 2 Timothy 2, this is a separate kind of imprisonment. The conditions are dark. They're dank. He's uh, a good 10, 15, 20 feet underground in a prison. It's a muddy hole. That's the nicest way to put it. And I've had the blessing of twice being in Rome and going to the traditional site where they believe the Apostle Paul was imprisoned. And you literally go down these stairs and it's so uh, far underneath ground that you can feel the cold. You can feel the darkness. It's, it's this sense of foreboding and bleakness. And so he's in this ominous environment. And then third, uh, if you go back and look at chapter 1, verse 15, and then if you go on and look at the following verses after the text we're looking at, you'll notice there that Paul lists at least three different people that were good friends or ministry associates that have now abandoned him. There's at least three. There's probably a lot more. He basically says at the end of the letter, pretty much everyone in the province, everyone in that region has abandoned me. So imagine you're on death row. They're ready to call your name. You're ready to, ha- you're ready to be beheaded. And all the people that you love and care about have been with you have now abandoned you and you're going to die alone. Do you see how bleak this is? I don't know if I'm communicating this well enough. It's a really bad situation. And yet, I want you to notice the tone here. Paul doesn't whine. He doesn't complain, right? He's not like, woe is me. I don't deserve this. This should have never happened. This is a travesty, right? We're really good in our modern age about complaining and whining and when everything doesn't go our way, right? We throw temper tantrums. And yet, we don't get that here. What we get is this tone of confidence and a mood of triumph, right? We're talking about mood. It's triumphant. Paul uh, is finishing out here on this zenith uh, out at the top. And so look at verse 7. What does he say? He says, I fought the good fight. This is the word agonizomai. This is the ninth and final time that we're looking at this verb that's used nine different times in the New Testament. And for the last time, I want to remind you, it means to contend for a prize. It means to struggle or to strive as in an athletic contest, right? The Greek games, wrestling against an opponent or in a foot race. Could be the marathon, could be 100 meters, whatever the case may be, or could be warfare. To struggle, to strive, to contend, and to win. So, Paul says here, he says, I've contended, I've competed, and not only have I competed, I've finished the race. I'm done, it's over. I made it. And then look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. I love it. He talks about the prize. He says, the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me the crown of righteousness. The only righteous one, the only one who's qualified is going to give me prize. Now, many versions translate this crown. So, right, we might think of a, a royal crown in today's way of thinking about it, gold, diamonds, etc. But the word here actually means laurel wreath. It's the laurel wreath that you would receive um, in those days in the Greco-Roman culture when you completed the marathon, when you finished the race, you were the winner and you get the, the wreath that indicates that you're the victor, that you're the champion. And so Paul here is indicating at the moment of death, he realizes that the moment that he dies, that he leaves this life, that he passes into the life to come. And at that moment, he receives the fullness 
of the victor's wreath, which is the fullness of eternal life. To be clear, we get eternal life. The moment you and I believe Jesus taught throughout the Gospels, we enter eternal life. The moment you and I believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, eternal life is birthed in us. The Holy Spirit, the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, takes residence, and the Bible says he becomes a deposit. So one day when we go into the presence of Jesus, that is the deposit guaranteeing what is to come. That is the sign that we belong to heaven. That is the, even the Holy Spirit is the foretaste of what heaven is to be like. And so at that moment that we die, we receive the fullness. We receive the beauty and the power and the weightiness of glory. And the Apostle Paul, after a faithful life, and in in Corinthians, I was just thinking about this the past week, 2 Corinthians, he lists that. 2 Corinthians 11, he lists all the things he's been through. Shipwreck, stone, I mean, he goes on and on. After all that, Paul gets eternal life. He'll be welcomed by Jesus into the new Jerusalem, into heaven, into the place of glory. But it happened because he contended for completion. He, he, by the grace of God, stayed faithful to the very end. Now, what I love about this passage, and I just want to point this out briefly, is there's a dynamic interplay in this passage because throughout the scriptures, the idea is that it's both the grace of God that allows us to contend and it's our own human efforts. Okay, to be clear, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Okay, God gives us the ability to believe. We believe in Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, repent of our sins. God enters our lives. That's a free total gift. But from that moment on, it's the process known as sanctification. It's growing in holiness and impurity and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we don't just sit there like an inert rock and God just somehow transforms us to become like Jesus. It's why we see this verb, agonizomai, to contend over and over and over again. That's why we see the Apostle Paul saying, I contended. And so what we see here is our growth in holiness, our growth in purity is both our human effort, our striving, and it's God's grace and God's power working in us and through us. There's this amazing uh, combination, this interplay, this uh, dynamism that takes place that as we seek God and we strive and we pray and we read the scriptures and we give, and we serve, we do all these things, God's grace empowers us to do them and infuses our lives and fuels us to move forward. And so I want you to see that we both strive and we're empowered, that we're both called to live by faith and God works in us and through us, as Paul said elsewhere, to bring that all to completion. So that's what Paul says here. And I want you to notice how Paul recognized God's power was working in him and through him up to the very end. And that Paul understood even in the worst circumstances that somehow he had not like fallen out of God's hands. Go back and look at verse six for a moment. Look at verse six. He says here, I'm being poured out, right? We see in different parts of the Old Testament, the the drink offering would be poured out before the animal is sacrificed. Sometimes it'd be poured on the animal before the animal is sacrificed and then burned as a burnt offering. Um, But the idea here is, if you'll notice, it's in the passive tense. It doesn't say I'm pouring myself out. He says I'm being poured out. Meaning, and I think this is very clear by what he's saying, is that God is the one that has brought Paul to this place. that, that, That Paul 
is about to die because God and his sovereignty has brought him to this place. That it is not Nero and not the Roman government that's taking Paul's life, but it is God that has allowed all these things to unfold. And now this is now God's work of allowing him to leave this life and to go into the next life. He says, I'm being poured out, meaning God is now allowing me to be poured out. And then look at what he says there. He says, in the time for my departure is near. What's interesting about that is that in the New Testament, you have two predominant words for time. The first is chronos, right? That's where we get the idea of chronology. And that's the, the clock ticking. That's the sun coming up and the sun going down. That's a day passes, a week passes, a month passes. That's the normal order of time. But the word that's used there is a very different word. It's the word kairos. Kairos. And this word means the appointed time, the favorable time or the opportune time, meaning a time appointed and chosen by God. So Paul says, even the time now that I'm being poured out, that's chosen by God. It's not chosen by Nero. It's not chosen by the Roman government. It's not chosen by the people that abandoned me and left me here. God has brought me to this place. And now God is the one that's bringing me home. So we see here, that Paul says, God has empowered my contending and yet I've contended with all my strength and now I've contended for completion. So bottom line here, that this passage instructs you and me that we're to contend for completion, that you and I are to spend every ounce of energy we have from the moment we believe until he calls us home or he comes again. We're to spend every minute, every hour, every opportunity we're given to walk faithfully with him and to strive until he calls us home. Now, how do we do that? <laughs> how do we do that, right? Well, I think we gain insight from the previous times that this verb has been used. And so I just want to take a moment to remind you of the other eight times we looked at this verb. And that gives us insight as to how we contend for completion. So in our first week, we looked at Jude chapter one, verse three, and we're called to contend for the faith entrusted to us. You and I are to contend for the gospel, the apostolic faith, the faith that's been handed down to us about Jesus Christ crucified, risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the father, receiving our prayers. He lives to intercede. And then one day, He'll come again to judge living and the dead. We're to contend to keep that message in our hearts and to share it with others. Secondly, we contend for our salvation. Again, we're saved by grace through faith, but to walk in that salvation, to work out our salvation, the apostle Paul says, with fear and trembling, with the grace that God gives us. In our third week, John 18, contend for Jesus's kingdom. It's not a kingdom of the world. We learned when Jesus had this interchange with Pilate, and Pilate wants to know if he's a king. And we learn from that that God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is not about the, um, the love of power, but the power of love. The power of his love. Not about us controlling our lives and gaining control over other people, but the power of love of Jesus working through us, through his sacrifice. And then 1 Corinthians 9, we contend for self-discipline. The apostle Paul says, I beat my body into submission. I deny myself, I train, I'm always training so I'll, for my work, for my work of the gospel and for the things that God has given me to do to complete the assignments I've been given. Then we looked at Colossians 1, I contend for maturity. We're to 
reach the fullness of who we are in Christ, to be um, fully formed in Christ, to look like Christ as much as possible before we're called home. So we mature, we reach the fullness of who he's called us to be. Then we looked at Colossians 4, we contend in prayer. We contend by praying. That's why the theme of this year is rooted in prayer. It's more than a program. It's the culture of the church. Everything that we're doing this year is geared around this. And we pray this takes root in our church. It's called rooted in prayer. So it becomes part of a lasting part of the culture. But we also contend for prayer, meaning we prioritize prayer. We contend by praying, but we also contend by making prayer a priority. Do you see the difference? It's really important. And then we learn in 1 Timothy 4.10 that hope in the living God and Savior motivates our contending. It's the hope that we have in Christ, the confident expectation of what God has done for us, the way we walk in him and live in him, and the gift of eternal life that we'll receive the fullness of one day. And then 1 Timothy 6, we contend for perseverance. We realize it's going to be hard, but we must endure. And if we have these kinds of priorities and this mindset, then we reach completion. 2 Timothy 4.7, as we just saw. And so what you and I see is from the Holy Scriptures, from the Apostle Paul, right? From the words of Jesus and from his brother Jude, we see here, this is how we contend for completion. These are the priorities that God has for us here at EFC in the year 2020. Now, as many of you aware, I just want to make two final comments. As many of you are aware, um, this past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday which means we entered in the season of Lent. Millions of Christians going back to the fourth century, Catholics, Protestants, Pentecostals, Orthodox, all the streams of Christianity that I'm aware of have participated in Lent. And we do this not out of rote obedience, not because we as followers of Jesus have to do it to be saved or you know, for Jesus Christ to be pleased with us. That's not the case. We, we don't do it out of compulsion. We do it out of a desire to identify with Jesus Christ in his 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, fasting and praying and seeking the presence of his father in preparation for his public ministry. And so Lent is all about ruthlessly eliminating all distractions, all non-essentials from our lives that we can pursue Jesus Christ more passionately. That's what we talked about this past Wednesday during our Lenten service. And so the idea here is that this is a great season to be contending for the gospel, to be contending for Jesus Christ, to be spending more time in scripture, reading it, reflecting on its meaning, uh, memorizing it, asking God to sow it deeper in our hearts, right? Lent is about preparing for Good Friday and Easter. We don't rush into the high season of our faith. We want to walk there steadily, being prepared to both mourn Jesus Christ dying for our sins and then celebrating that he rose again. It's about scripture. It's about prayer. It's about serving as the Holy Spirit leads us. This is a great season as a community of followers of Jesus to be contending for the gospel, for the faith of Jesus Christ. Let me put this another way then. Uh, This past week on Thursday, I was on a coaching call with Daniel Henderson. You just saw the video. Amazing man of God. He trained last May all of our pastors in his method of prayer, which is based on the Lord's Prayer. So he's teaching us how to pray based on the Lord's Prayer. And I was in my second of seven uh, trainings, prayer sessions. 
And he said something that literally floored me that made me say, whoa. He said this, power of no is in the power of a stronger yes. Power of no is in a stronger yes. When you and I deny ourselves from the non-essentials, it's because we're seeking something greater. Our culture, we, we, it's because we're so self-indulgent and so individualistic, it's always about what we're not getting. But the power to say no to things is the Holy Spirit leads us for whatever it is he may have us fast from or let go of so we can pursue God more passionately is in the yes of wanting more of Jesus Christ. More of his presence, more of his word, more prayer, right? The power in the no is in the stronger yes. And so EFC, let's say yes to being a contending church in 2020. Let's say yes to being contending individuals, contending marriages, and contending families here in 2020. Let's say yes to more of Jesus Christ. Let's say yes to pursuing his priorities for us. Let's say yes by yielding to the lover of our souls and to the pursuer of our souls. One way we can do that, I just want to encourage you, is maybe during the final song or maybe after the service, we have up here all these prayer praise walls. And when I talked about that as part of the prayer culture of the church, uh, all the other pastors perked up because I guess not a lot of other churches have prayer praise walls. But my encouragement to you is if you want to be a contending Christian, you want to have a contending family, and you want EFC to be a contending church, during the final song or maybe after the service, just go up on the prayer praise walls, put down your initials, and put yes exclamation point. Say, I want the stronger yes, and therefore I'll say no to lesser things so I can press deeper into Christ into this season. And if you and I will do that, if we will, by God's grace, say yes to being a contending church, to being contending Christians, to being a contending community, then one day I'm very confident that our epitaphs will say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, we are here because we are people, people desperate for you. God, if we can't recognize that, give us the grace to recognize our lack, our hunger, our thirst. What we do not want to do as a church is be a complacent church. God, we don't want to be a church that takes what you've given us for granted. But like the Apostle Paul, like Jesus, like Jude, and like all those who've gone before us to be people that contend for the faith, that contend for the gospel, that contend in prayer, and that contend to endure and to finish the race well. So we ask you, Lord, that you... Lord, will show us the beauty of the yes, which is the beauty to more of you, which means we have to let go of some things, God, during this season. There's some things that we'll let go of for these 40 days, and maybe after 40 days, we realize we didn't really need them anyway, and we just develop new habits and new ways of life that create more space for you to speak to us through your word, through prayer, through sharing the gospel, through serving others in need here in our community, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. But God, may it be said of EFC that at the end of 2020, we are a contending church, that we have grown closer to you and that we want more of you and that we're pursuing you more in a focused way, in a more passionate way. And we know in as much as we do this, God, you will be pleased. And that one day 
we will be able to say, we have fought the good fight. We have finished the race. We have kept the faith. And you will say to us, well done, good and faithful servants. Well done, people of EFC. We thank you, we praise you, and we trust that you will do that deep work in us as we strive. Pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen.